you have your Bible, let's turn together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. And as we're turning in our Bibles, if you need a Bible to follow along with us this morning as we study God's Word, we do have some. We'd be happy to bring one over to you. Just hold your hand up and the ushers would be happy to give you a Bible to follow along in God's Word with us this morning. Just hold your hand up and they'll bring one over to you. Luke chapter 13, we've been studying Luke's gospel together. We finished chapter 12 last week, so this morning we continue forward in chapter 13, verse 1, and we're going to look at verse 1 down through verse 9. And if you're turning together there with me, would you stand out of respect for the word of God as I read our text for Bible study? Luke 13, beginning in verse 1, says there were present at that season... Some who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. And Father, we do lift before you the word of God that you have given to us this morning. And Lord, we want to continue now in an attitude of worship in spirit and in truth as you said you desire us to worship you in that way. And as we've sang and prayed and fellowshiped, we consider this just as much a moment of worship as we avail our hearts to what you would want to speak to each and every one of us present in this room this morning through your living word that's inspired. You said it was alive and powerful, Lord that it was able to judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. And we pray you do that with your word this morning. Lord, we invite you to, we ask you to speak personally to each one of us because we need to hear what you'd say to us, that we might live our lives in a way that are pleasing to you and profitable here on this earth. So would you bless your word now? We ask for your spirit's ministry and that he would be our teacher and give us understanding in the Word of God this morning. And we pray and commit these things to you in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, perspective is basically the way in which we view something. And I have found in my own life, and probably you have seen as well, that everybody has the potential to have a wrong perspective on occasion. That is something we can all be guilty of. Having a wrong perspective, having a wrong perception on a person, on a matter, on a situation, 
we can all be very guilty of that at times in our lives. And you'll see this morning as we go through this next section of Scripture together that we find Jesus really dealing with wrong perspectives. We'll find in this passage here that Jesus reveals, even kind of rebukes a little bit, some wrong perspectives that he saw among people in that day. He'll deal with wrong perspectives about other people and how we can have wrong perspectives towards other people. He addresses how we can have a wrong perspective about ourselves sometimes and even ultimately how we can, as human beings, even at times have a wrong perspective about God and about what God is really like. Now look with me again back in verse 1 as we go into this. It tells us that there were present at that season some who told Jesus, it says, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So take note here. As the scene opens up, it shows us a group of people, a few individuals, who apparently feel led to come to Jesus simply to give him a report about the events and the details that were going on in the lives of other people. That's exactly what verse 1 shows us. There were some, it says, who came and told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So the scene opens with a group coming to Jesus and sharing with him some details about a story and event regarding some other people. Apparently, they felt that they kind of needed to be informants. That they needed to come to Jesus for whatever reason, it doesn't tell us, but the way Jesus responds, I think we begin to see that he recognized what their intentions were under the surface. But they come to Jesus kind of feeling the need to be informants just in case maybe Jesus was not aware of these events that had happened or these issues or facts in this given situation. And we'll see as we go through this story together that Jesus was not real impressed or really very appreciative of their compelling need to be informants to give a report about the activities or the situations in regards to the lives of other people. In fact, we'll see he'll actually reprove them right away for their wrong perspectives towards these people and their wrong perceptions that they had in their hearts towards why these events were happening and what was going on in this situation. And let me just say this by way of a bird's eye perspective moving into this though I'd agree that there is at times a genuine need maybe to share things with people in a particular situation and special circumstances I really think we need to be careful and more than that prayerful in regards to doing these kind of things on occasion because more often than not typically being an informant or a reporter of some sorts many a times more often than not it's not healthy and it's usually not a very productive thing. And I think we need to be careful on occasion. Instead of being so concerned about others and becoming a, a, a reporter in some sense as we all can do on occasion, it would probably for most of us be a lot better to just spend a little more time, effort, and energy being a little more concerned about ourselves and maybe how we're doing and where we're at and giving more attention and focus to that rather than feeling in some way we need to come and share something about what's going on in someone else's life or, or become, in essence, a Christian tattletale. And we can all do that. Many times we couch it in very spiritual ways. Hey, I want to share something with you so you can pray for this person. 
And, and, and we can all be guilty of that. I can tell you very candidly, in 14, 15 years of pastoral ministry, it's astonishing how guilty as Christians we can become of being a little Christian tattletales. And, and, and being a pastor, many a times, I see and experience that a lot. It's the same way how, what do children do if you've raised children, you have kids in your household, they come to you as dad or they come to you as mom, and what do they do? They, they tattletale on their brother or sister. Hey, he's doing that or she's doing this or you, you, you should go check on him. Or, and, and, and children do that to, to parents. And, and as a pastor, I, I've seen and witnessed, I don't just say this in vain, I've seen and witnessed this many times throughout the years. And here it's interesting to me, it seems like that's kind of what you have going on here a little bit, both by what's happening in the circumstance as well as the way Jesus pretty abruptly responds as soon as they come to him and start to share these things. Watch what happens in our scene and how these truths unfold. Jesus has just finished a teaching where he was warning people to be ready for his soon return, where he was exhorting at the end of that message for each person to take personal responsibility to do the right thing in regards to their own life. And now he's approached in verse 1 here, right after that, or maybe even, we don't know, maybe even interrupted before the teaching was over, we're not certain, by some who feel led to give him this report about something that happened and those who were involved in it. And we find them coming here to Jesus, informing him of some details, and Jesus, knowing all things... Take notice, as you see the story unfold, he discerns that not only are they informing him about some facts or details about some people and some individuals and events that happened, but Jesus, knowing all things, discerns that they're also inferring something by what they're telling him. And Jesus, seeing the hearts and the minds of individuals very clearly in his response, indicates as the way he answers them that he knew that they had speculated some things regarding these events and these particular individuals they're reporting on and that they had come to some conclusions and were speculating certain things and that the reason they were, in essence, even telling him this was partly that they were also trying to infer something by what they were reporting about. That they were trying to refer and, and indicate that potentially it meant something. That's why notice verse 2, Jesus says there, do you, circle this word, suppose? They tell him, all they do is just share a little bit of facts. And the first thing Jesus says, the answer is, do you suppose that those Galileans were just worse sinners because they suffered? In other words, do you suppose this just because this happened in their lives? And then again in verse 4, without even addressing it, he brings up the subject regarding the deaths that happened at another event at the Tower of Siloam. And Jesus there says, do you think, in other words, he realized what they were thinking, do you think that the reason this happened is because this or that was going on in their life? And he recognized they had drawn a conclusion from their perspective and they have observed and knew some details and therefore they were supposing certain things about certain people. They were thinking certain things in regards to their own observations. And this is also something, again, as I said, we can be very quick to do. We're very prone to this by nature. We make personal observations and then we go straight to human speculation. It's just our nature. It's our tendency in what we do. We assume and suppose things. And in this scene, whether Jesus knew it or not, they inform him in verse 1, it tells us, about a tragic event that had happened 
where some Galilean people were brutally murdered, it tells us, verse 1, by Pilate, and the very bloodshed of those murders was apparently mingled together somehow with the blood of the Jewish sacrifices on the altar in that day. And that would be utterly sacrilegious to a Jew. That would be completely disgraceful. Now, we have no record in Scripture of the exact event that verse 1 is referring to to give us further details. We do know from history and historians that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in that day, did not get along with the Jews at all. In fact, there was tremendous resentment and animosity. Pilate was very insensitive to the religious convictions of the Jews in that day. For example, he would purposely bring Roman symbols into Jerusalem just to infuriate the Jews. And he would put up, you know, ensigns and emblems of the Roman government and Caesar there in the holy city, Jerusalem, and in the temple. And this would just infuriate the Jews as he would bring these signs and symbols in. And Pilate threatened to kill any protesters. And many of the Jews were willing to die because of their convictions. Now, it's very possible, some believe this bloody atrocity referred to here in verse 1 actually refers to a time when Pilate in history sought to build this aqueduct there in Israel in that day, and he actually appropriated money from the temple treasury in Jerusalem to help finance this aqueduct. So he appropriated temple money that was to be used for God's purposes in their worship gatherings to finance this uh, sort of political decision to do a little bit of uh, road work and so forth in the culture in that day. And as would be expected, there were angry Jews in protest. And they protested what Pilate was doing as their leader in that day. So Pilate had soldiers in civilian clothes sink themselves in the midst of the crowd, covering themselves up in the middle of a mob, and having concealed weapons at a certain point, this angry massacre breaks out to kill those in protest, and it gets out of hand. And innocent lives are lost, and just this angry mob begins to unfold, and there's bloodshed that's quite extensive. Now, there were many Jews, though they did not agree and like Pilate, at the same token, did not agree that protesting was the right idea. And so when this atrocity happened and this blood was shed, they didn't see causing bloodshed as a good situation to handle what was happening either. Remember, outwardly in verse 1, they're just telling Jesus about some facts and some events that happened. We don't know if they're trying to point to the Galileans or to Pilate, but Jesus can always see the thoughts and motivations of every heart and every mind. And he sees exactly what they're inferring by the events that they're describing and the people they're reporting on. And note, Jesus does not address their comments by adding his opinion to the event whatsoever, which is probably what they were looking for. Instead, what we find is Jesus identifies their own mindset and he challenges them regarding the condition of their own heart and the perspectives that they had developed towards these other people that's why in verse 2 he says do you and you should circle the word suppose is this what you're supposing Jesus says is this the conclusion that you've drawn regarding those Galilean people regarding the events that happened and what your perspective is towards them is this is what you're supposing and he says because you should underline because they suffered such things do you suppose this about them because you know this about them? Is that what you're doing, Jesus says? 
And he's addressing what he could see. Apparently, these informants assumed a particular Galilean people must have suffered and died at the hands of Pilate because they were wrong and guilty before God. So God just allowed them to get judged. And God just allowed them to die and suffer. That was the reason why, apparently, they believed these people had suffered these consequences. He says, are you supposing these Galileans were worse sinners just because they suffered such things? Is that what you're supposing, Jesus says? He supposed that, that, they had, that it happened because they had done something wrong? Now, what he recognizes is they were much like Job's counselors. Remember the Old Testament, the book of Job, and what were Job's counselors doing? They watched Job begin to suffer, and they drew conclusions, and supposed that they saw Job suffering, that they instantly suspected that he must have undealt with sin, and therefore he was just under God's judgment. And you find nothing new under the sun. Knowing what they suppose, look how Jesus answers them in verse 3. He says, listen, I tell you, no. Jesus says, look, let me clarify what you're supposing in your own perception. You're completely wrong. I tell you, no. You're supposing that they were worse sinners and they suffered because of those things. But he says, despite the conclusions that you've drawn maybe from your own ideas or the input of other people, Jesus says, let me clarify, you're wrong. I tell you that's not the case whatsoever and what you're supposing is not right at all. And he addresses that in front of them. Now he gives another example then in verse 4 without even them bringing this up. Look at verse 4. He says, Or how about those 18? He brings up another event. On whom the tower in Siloam fell and it killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? So look what Jesus does. He's trying to address what he sees is in their hearts and their minds. So he transitions now, continuing to deal with them, and he talks now about a natural disaster. In verse 4, he's referring to something we could just can say it was sort of a, a construction accident. It had nothing to do with the cruelty of Pilate or human causes that brought about the deaths of those 18 people when the Tower of Siloam fell. That wasn't... Pilate's cruelty being poured out. It wasn't the people in that day who had brought on uh, and invoked this problem. It really, what he's referring to, was just sort of a freak accident. It was a construction accident. Maybe an earthquake happened. Maybe it was a strong windstorm. Maybe it was faulty construction. Whatever the case, it was just something that was a, a freak accident where this construction, this tower, just unfortunately fell and 18 people died when this tower fell in that day. But no one was necessarily doing anything wrong in that situation. It wasn't the cruelty of Pilate and it wasn't the wrong behavior and protests of the people who were in the crowd. It was just a tragic accident where 18 people died and Jesus is in essence saying, so who was at fault in that situation? Whose fault was that that those people died and those people suffered? And Jesus seeing their perception again says do you think it's that they were worse sinners again he knew that they also had developed apparently a perspective about that situation as well where people apparently maybe even these who were reporting to him had developed the mindset that those 18 people when the tower of siloam fell basically those 18 people must have just not been right with god and therefore that's why that tragedy happened and the tower destroyed them and again jesus emphasizes and clarifies that was not the case. Look what he says again in verse 5. I tell you, no. That was not the case, Jesus says. 
Again, Jesus is emphasizing that was not the cause behind what happened. He's saying it was not an act of God's judgment. When that tower fell on those people, that wasn't an act of God's judgment because they were just worse sinners or evil, sinful people that weren't right with God. And so the tower falling was an act of God's judgment to destroy them. Listen, granted God does. Granted God does when necessary. At times discipline and judge sin and sinful behavior and wrong activity. He will allow us to reap what we sow when we are willfully rebellious in this life. That is true. However, human tragedies are not always divine punishments on the earth. Human tragedies are not always divine punishments on this earth. And let's be careful that we don't suppose and think that's always the case automatically. Let's be cautious that we don't instantly assume that all suffering in someone's life, all problems in someone's life, all deaths and things that happen is just an indication of God's severe judgment. Hey, can I caution all of us this morning? Let's be careful we don't start playing God in people's lives. And looking from the outside and determining that we know for certain that that's just God judging that person. That's God just disciplining that individual. Let me make a few applications. First of all, we need to be careful, very careful, about drawing conclusions when we see people suffering. Speculating and assuming like we do sometimes when we watch maybe somebody going through a problem, maybe a financial problem, or maybe it's a health problem, or maybe it's a, 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 a family problem, or a relationship, or just difficult circumstances. We need to be careful that we don't instantly assume and automatically suppose from what little limited information we often have that the reason why is, well, they just must be making wrong decisions. They just must be making bad choices. They must be just living out of tune with God. And, and of course, no wonder they're going through all those difficulties. No wonder they're having all those problems and all those challenges. I don't want to deny, again, that sometimes, sometimes sinful activity in all of our lives certainly can bring its consequences and measures of suffering. We have examples of that. I mean, we have King Saul in the Bible and it's very obvious that Saul's problems and the calamities and the downfall of his life was because he became rebellious and disobedient and arrogant and hard-hearted and eventually God let him reap what he sowed. We have people in the Bible that show us that Nebuchadnezzar and Ahab and Jezebel, even Jonah the prophet, a man of God who brought difficult circumstances into his own life and the lives of others because he was backslidden and he was rebellious, even Judas Iscariot. Yet suffering is not always linked to disobedience. Suffering is not always the result of personal sin or mistakes or wrongdoing. Again, think of Job. Job was a godly man. In fact, he was so godly God himself was bragging about him. God was looking upon his life saying, I have nobody like this guy on the whole earth. He's blameless and he's upright and he fears God. And Job was one of the most godly, righteous individuals and yet he was experiencing tremendous suffering in his life. Can I go to the greatest extreme? What about Jesus? Jesus was the sinless son of God. He never thought, did, and said anything that was wrong. He was tempted in all points, but yet was without sin, and yet as the sinless Son of God, did Jesus suffer? 
He sure did. He suffered throughout his life and his ministry, and he ultimately suffered tremendously in paying for our sins upon the cross. But it had nothing to do with sin or mistakes or wrongdoing, but yet he was suffering. He was dealing with difficulty. In fact, quite honestly, when we study the Bible and just evaluate life honestly, the Bible shows us that sometimes doing what is right is what causes our suffering. We're quick to think it's what was wrong that caused the suffering. Sometimes the Bible tells us the very fact that doing the righteous thing is what causes suffering. That doing a godly thing or walking a godly course is the thing that brings suffering, brings struggle, and brings difficulty into our lives. Again, think of David, man after God's own heart. David was doing what was right, following the call of God upon his life. And David was dealing with all kinds of problems and difficulties. Think of people like Daniel and Jeremiah, Paul the Apostle, again Jesus, all people who were doing what was right and godly, and as the direct result of doing what was right and godly, they were suffering as a result of doing what's right, not what's wrong. Daniel took a stand for God, and he got thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took a stand for God, and they got thrown into the fiery furnace. Paul the Apostle went around preaching the gospel and ministering and pouring out his life for other people. And Paul lists off his sufferings and his struggles and just all the difficulties he went through. But all those things were connected to doing what was right and doing what was righteous. And it was those very things that brought the challenges into his life. See, direct opposition and difficulty on this earth many times will always be connected to living for God. Because we don't have a culture in our day and age, certainly, that is seeking to go the direction that God would have us to go. This is a fallen world. And the world and the flesh and the devil are against us, and any dead fish can float downstream. It doesn't take any courage to float downstream with the current of the rest of the world. That takes no courage at all. Well, I want to be cool, man. I don't want to, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. Well, you're not cool. You're a coward. Any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live fish to swim upstream against the current. To say, look, I know that's how everybody else acts in business, but, you know, I'm a Christian. And so I'm not going to lie. And maybe other people may lie or cheat or take money under the table or do this or that, but I, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to work for a business where I continue to do things that are unethical. And I'm a Christian. I have a higher standard and a deeper moral conviction. I'm not going to you know, cheat or manipulate or climb up somebody else's back to try and get a promotion and, and, and hurt and leave casualties of people in my wake just because I'm trying to advance. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to honor God and, and let the chips fall where they may. Or you know, as a young person, look, I understand the way everybody else may be acting or dressing or listening to this or talking like that or, or treating people in this way, but, but to say, you know what, but, but I'm a Christian teenager. I serve Jesus. And I'm not ashamed that I'm a Christian teenager. So if that means that I deal with a little bit of, of challenge in my school system or from my... Well, then you know what? Hey, it's nothing in comparison to what Jesus suffered for me. And God help us to have the boldness and the conviction in our lives to realize that sometimes doing what's right can be the very thing that causes challenge and difficulties. Again, we have verses like 2 Timothy 3.12 that says, All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Interesting, all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. 
In other words, I actually don't deal with that much difficulty. I don't get much resistance. I've been a Christian. I've never had persecution. I've never had any tension, never had any resistance. Well, Paul says, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, if you seek to live godly in your walk with Jesus Christ, not just you know, get your eternal destination ticket from Jesus and then just sort of float your way then into eternity and just be a static, stagnant Christian and say, hey, I know I'm going to heaven, but I don't want to make any waves in the world. Then he says, okay, well, if you're not living godly, you probably won't get resistance. But if you're getting some resistance spiritually, the Bible says, hey, praise the Lord, you must be living godly in Christ Jesus because you're going against the current a little bit and therefore you're, you're getting a little resistance and it becomes really a badge of honor. And it's an indication that sometimes suffering can be the result of doing the right thing, not always the wrong thing. And suffering in general is just a part and a process of this life and this world in a fallen condition. People will get hurt. People are going to be mistreated on occasion. People are going to get sick and people are going to struggle at times in this life. And listen, the last thing suffering people need during the time of their difficulty when they're going through hardship, is for us to instantly suppose that they deserve what they're getting. That is the last thing that hurting people need, to speculate that we know the reason behind it. Instead, we ought to, when we see somebody suffering, come alongside of them and try and help bear their burden, not add to their burden, by speculating that we just know the reason why, and therefore it's we suppose this or we think that, behind the suffering. Part of what Jesus is identifying, as I said, is he's addressing how we can often have wrong perspectives towards other people. It's something that we all can easily be guilty of where we suppose and perceive that we know things about a particular person or a particular group of people, which often, many a times, we find out later on we're totally wrong. Who would not be the first to admit this morning that maybe we had a perspective towards someone and we believed it for a while and then events unfolded or we got to know somebody on our own and then we found out I was totally off base. In fact, I'm pretty embarrassed that I listened to what other people told me about that individual and treated them that way. Or I'm pretty convicted that I just developed this perception because of what I saw or what limited information I knew and I had this perception or perspective towards this person and come to find out I was completely in error. We need to be careful of this sinful tendency. And I would ask you this morning, be honest with yourself. Are you doing that right now? Is there somebody in your life, somebody in your job, somebody in the body of Christ that you're doing that with? The Bible that we read tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes all things and it hopes all things. It doesn't suppose, it doesn't think. It believes all things and hopes all things until it sees clearly otherwise or it asks to clarify is this the truth rather than just supposing something in regards to what we see or know. And Jesus here pretty quickly goes to the heart of the matter and says to them, hey, is that what's happening? Are you supposing these Galileans were just worse sinners? And because that's 
the reason why they suffered and died. Are you supposing those people that died in the Tower of Siloam that that happened because they were worse sinners than other people in that day and God as an act of judgment was just bringing down his hammer and gavel upon them? Another thing I think Jesus shows us here is that we can also have wrong perceptions not only about others, but we can also have wrong perspectives about ourselves. We can all have a wrong perspective about ourselves. Notice the repetition of Jesus' answer in verse 3 and again in verse 5. And notice he's very repetitious for emphasis. He says there, I tell you no about what you're perceiving about others. But then he says, but unless you repent. Notice where he brings his attention back to. I'm telling you no, that's not the case what you're believing about others. But he now shifts their focus and says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he says the same thing in verse 3 and 5 for emphasis. In other words, he's shifting their attention and he's shifting their focus from thinking about the sinfulness of other people and trying to force them to recognize and to remember to the fact that they are sinners themselves. That's why he says two times, but I tell you, unless you repent, you're worried about them and their sinfulness. And Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you also will experience consequences. And Jesus wants them to confront the reality of their own personal sinfulness before God. To remember and reflect upon the fact and not overlook that they themselves had just as much need of repentance as every other breathing soul on the planet. That they were just as mistake-ridden and faulty and they had somehow began to feel, it seems, by what they were saying to Jesus and what he identifies and reveals in their heart attitudes, that they somehow were starting to think that they were better than other people. Jesus says, you think they're worse sinners? Worse sinners than you, he's trying to say? Do you think they're worse sinners? And Jesus recognized that they had lost perspective of their own personal sinfulness in their own lives. So he says, I tell you, unless you repent... And the word repent means to turn away from sin and error and go the opposite direction. It means to have a change of mind that leads to change in behavior or change in actions or attitude. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't crying. It can be a part of repentance. But you know, I've been in prisons many a times and there are lots of people who cry over the things that they've done that got themselves into prison, but they're not repentant. They're sad they got caught. And they're upset now they're dealing with the consequences, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're repentant. Repentance is a change of mind. It can include crying and weeping. But repentance is a change of mind that says, that was wrong. What I'm thinking is wrong, or what I was doing, it was wrong. And, and, and I acknowledge no excuses, no justification or rational. It was just wrong. I'm wrong. And therefore, I want to turn around and do what's right. You can repent without ever crying. You can repent without even telling anyone you're repenting. The Bible speaks of the fruits of repentance. In other words, it's something. repentance is something that's seen. It's not something we talk about. It's something that's seen in our lives. It's a change of mind, a change of attitude that leads to a change then in our action and behavior. And those who are approaching Jesus, he seems to indicate, should have been more focused on their own spiritual condition as sinners before a holy God like everybody else, and that should have been their top priority. That his preference would have been that they were considering their own personal failures that maybe they needed to repent of before God. 
that they would keep the focus and emphasis on being more conscious and concerned about their own errors. And it's a reminder, as I said at the beginning of the study, that sometimes we can all be very guilty, myself included, of losing perspective and having a wrong perspective towards ourselves, where somehow we actually start to think, I know you never struggle with this, let me use my own life as an example, we start to think we're actually better than other people. We begin to develop a mindset, and it may be very subtle, where we think, well, I mean, I'm not as bad as. And we may not even say it out loud, but the mental rationalizing in our mind is we're comparing ourselves to you know, this person who's a, a cruel dictator in a foreign country or the person out there who's pushing drugs, the 10-year-olds, or this person who, and we, I mean, by, in comparison to them. I mean, I'm a saint in comparison to them. Oh, you're not a saint unless you're in Jesus. You're a sinner in the hands of a holy God that is just as evil and wicked as everyone else like I am. The only thing that makes us righteous is Jesus. The only thing that we lack that other people, maybe who are doing more gross and horrible things are, is we just, by the grace of God, have lacked the opportunity to do what they've done. And by the grace of God, he restrained us from maybe going to that distance in our own sinfulness. And we can forget our own sinfulness before God and the fact that we all need to be repentant of our failures, that we are all equally sinful before a holy God. The Bible says that there is no difference. We all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. There's no difference. There's a quality in our own mistake-ridden sinfulness in our lives. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and we all justly deserve eternal punishment in hell. It's what we justly deserve for our sin and our offenses in thought, word, and deed against a holy God. And therefore, recognizing that every person must come to a place and time in their own life where they themselves, believing those things to be true about their own sinfulness and what God has provided for salvation, where we, recognizing we are a sinner, personally repent of our own sinfulness and receive by faith Jesus Christ as our Savior for our sin. And we respond to him and embrace him as the Lord of our lives. John the Baptist's message, the forerunner of Jesus, his primary message included the word repent. John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he understood the natural inclination in every human being is to go the opposite direction of the kingdom of God. So he says, you have to repent so that you can come towards and enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself, Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, turn around, I've been wrong. I thought that I'm okay and good enough to go to heaven on my own. I'm not a sinner. And Jesus says, no, you have to come to the place where you realize I am just as much a sinner as every other person on this planet. And I do deserve, justly, to go to hell and be punished unless God forgives my sin. And I, I do believe that the only person who can forgive my sin is the one who died for my sin, which is Jesus. The church didn't die for my sin. A pastor didn't die for my sin. A priest didn't die for your sin. Jesus died for your sin. 
And we have to come to that place where we realize setting aside our own old ideas or even maybe wrong religious ideas that we held, hey, I need to repent of my sin and I need to receive Jesus personally myself as my own Savior to ask Him to wash away my sins. And this morning, let me say this, if you've been living with a wrong perspective towards yourself, hey, that's okay. But if God's opened your eyes and he's allowed you to see and recognize these spiritual realities, listen, today is the day to resolve what you've now recognized spiritually. It took me a while to recognize it. I had a friend who became a born-again Christian, and for two years he shared the Lord with me and tried to explain what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. And for two years, I was his greatest persecutor. I made his life miserable. I mocked him and made fun of him. And, and, and for two years, I wrestled through the reality of, you know what? Maybe he is right. And maybe it is true. And maybe I'm wrong. And it took me having to be humbled by God to recognize I'm the one that's been wrong. And I need to repent. And I need Jesus myself. And I need Jesus to save me and to forgive me. That's why Jesus says in verse 3 and 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now the wonderful thing is this, John 3.16, Jesus said what? For God so loves the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, Jesus says, that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. God's made a provision in a way for us not to perish eternally, but to have forgiveness and access to heaven. Peter says this in Acts 3.19. Peter says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This morning, if you've never embraced Jesus Christ, that's God's heart for you, that you would respond in your own initiative. And even after we have all, as a Christian this morning, if that's where you're at, repented of our sin initially and been converted and had our sins forgiven, repentance should still be a part of our lives where we, in a continual attitude of repenting on a daily basis, convict find ourselves convicted of our sin and wrongdoing and we say, man, I'm out of tune with God right now. I need to repent. The times in our lives where we think wrongly or I have a wrong attitude and the Holy Spirit convicts me of my attitude or my wrong mindset and, and I need to repent of that. Say, Lord, my attitude was wrong. The way I was thinking there was wrong. Forgive me, Lord. I, I repent of that. Help me to have a change of mind. Or when we say something that we shouldn't have said, or we act or behave in a way that was not pleasing to God, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of that guilt, we need to confess it and call it what it is, and to repent when we've become out of tune with God's Holy Spirit. And repentance, if we have a right perspective towards ourselves as a Christian, repentance should be an everyday part of our Christian walk even after coming to Jesus, where we continually realize, hey, I've got out of step with God's Spirit, my attitude, my actions, my words and behaviors, I need to repent here and get back in tune with the Spirit of God. And maybe there's something God wants you to repent of as a Christian this morning that He's been speaking to you about and He's waiting for you to acknowledge it and to respond in an attitude of repentance. Thirdly, Jesus also indicates not just wrong perspectives towards others and wrong perspectives towards ourselves. But we'll see in these last few verses, he addresses, I think, through a parable that we can also have a wrong perspective towards God himself and the nature of God. 
And I think that's why Jesus gives this next parable, because we need to be careful of viewing human tragedies, as I said earlier, as a divine punishment and an act of God to judge people on this earth and purposely destroy people as if the nature of God is just to quickly judge people. And that somehow that's God's nature, just to, to quickly pour out his anger and wrath as soon as somebody gets a little bit out of line. And I understand that's a struggle. I'll be honest, it's a struggle for me because that can be my nature many times. You know, just a few days ago, I was at an event with you know, my family and some other Christians, and one of my daughters came back to me and told me that you know, three young men had said something a little inappropriate to one of my teenage daughters. And instantaneously, I see one thing. The wrath of Tony. And bloodshed all over the beach. I didn't take into consideration anything else. That's my child. And instantaneously, my response is, I got now, thankfully, by the grace of God, God knows me, and I'm glad I'm not God, and you should be glad I'm not God too. I instantaneously got up. I started marching down the path to head out towards the beach where apparently these individuals were. And, and, and I have one thought on my mind. Kill them, bury them in the sand. It's dark. No one will ever know. Thankfully, it was like a... 15, 20, now, and we were with a bunch of Christians, and on top of it, they're following me down the path, going, Dad, where are you going, where are you going? i just not talking, I'm marching down the path, and, and, I'm, and the whole way down the path, you know, there's the Holy Spirit's arguing with you, uh, what are you doing? I'm going to kill some people, what, what, what am I doing? You can't do that, listen, you go stay back there, I'll talk to you when I'm finished, you know, just, just, and you're arguing with the Holy Spirit, and you're walking down there, and, and, I just, and he's saying, listen, well, it's going to look real great, you know, New pastor in town, kills three individuals, unsuccessfully buries them in the sand. You know, and here you are in prison on the front page of the newspaper. But that, that's our attitude. We instantaneously, somebody makes us mad, we're, we're ready to judge somebody. That's our human nature. Sometimes we carry that idea over and we think that's what God's like. That as soon as somebody upsets God or offends God a little bit, he's ready to just drop the gavel. And because he's a holy God, that he is just going to pour out his wrath and his anger. And I think Jesus wants to clarify that God is not quick to judge. That that's not the nature of God. He is merciful and patient to forestall as long as possible. Look, I think Jesus illustrates this in this final parable, verse 6 through 9. It says, he also spoke this parable, saying, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. So he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I can dig around it and fertilize it. The idea is give it some help, potentially. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, then you can cut it down. So the story depicts this owner of a vineyard that he planted coming to rightfully acquire fruit from it and to partake of what he planted and continually being disappointed year after year over an extended period of time because that plant was failing in its proper purpose for what it was intended for. And after a patient waiting period, he then justly makes a decision to remove that fig tree since it had repeatedly shown its failure of purpose and that it now was just even using and occupying good space that a more fruitful plant could be in its place and begin to flourish in. That's why in verse 7 it says he came for three years and he says, I'm seeking fruit and I keep finding none. So look, it's the right thing. It's, let's just cut it down. It's continuing to just use up extra ground. And then the idea comes 
to this owner of the vineyard to offer more mercy, to extend patience for one more year. And not just to extend mercy and patience, but even to graciously help the plant by seeking to do whatever possibly could still be done. To fertilize it, to remove weeds, to assist it to get back on course and become fruitful. And he says, and then after that, after you've been patient and merciful and even gracious to even try and help it get back on course, though it justly doesn't deserve it anymore, after that, if it still doesn't change and it's barren, then certainly removal and disposal is the just and the only recourse at that time. Now, Isaiah chapter 5 tells us that God views the nation of Israel as a vineyard. Other Old Testament passages say that God symbolizes Israel by a fig tree. And no doubt here there's a reference by Jesus to the spiritual failure of the Jewish nation. How God had planted them and intended them to be spiritually fruitful. And unfortunately the religious system of that day in Israel had failed to fulfill its purpose. To bring about fruitfulness in the lives of God's people. And not only that, it was now just occupying space by its continual existence and it actually had come to the place where it was now even hindering other fruitful things from happening spiritually because of its continual existence in that failed condition and it was using up fertile soil and see the established religious system in that day of Judaism was at this point in Jesus day now even hindering the gospel from flourishing in the way in which the Lord intended it to. And the main point of the parable is how mercy and patience and grace was extended to this plant repeatedly, though it had failed its purpose time and time again. And though the owner had been patient, it was not just severely judged. He didn't instantly just root it out in the first six months and say, that's it. And just, it wasn't a severe judgment. He didn't remove it after the first failure. The owner patiently kept coming back again and again and again and again. And repeatedly over a patient extended period of time, he kept coming to this place hoping for change. And then ultimately, even once it had come to a place where it clearly deserved to be judged and removed, still what? Still another season. Another season of patience and even grace was extended once again for one last try to try and avoid the judgment of severity upon that plant. And what is Jesus picturing? I'll tell you what he's picturing. He's picturing God's patience and God's mercy and God's grace being extended to the nation of Israel and really, for that matter, being extended to each and every one of us as people on this planet. And how God, though people supposed and thought that God just abruptly judged people and as soon as they were sinners that God just, he would just kill them or destroy them or eliminate them and bring judgment, that the reality is, is that God is very patient. God is long-suffering. God doesn't will it, the Bible says doesn't, doesn't desire that any would perish. The Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And even when people are are in a place where they justly deserve to bring about God's judgment upon their life, does not, let's be honest, does not God extend repeated opportunities for people to have more time, another chance, 
And he continues to extend his patience and extend his mercy, trying to avoid the judgment of God. He keeps giving them time and more chances and more opportunities. And we as human beings step back and we scratch our heads. We even get frustrated. I do. You don't have to admit it. I do. I get frustrated at the the patience and the mercy of God. I love it for myself. I don't like it for you so much, but I sure like it for myself. And God doesn't quick and severely judge. He even gives, you know, multiple opportunities. And then on top of that, he even extends measures of grace. He extends measures of grace to try and help people repent, to help them be restored, to help them to, you know, get back on track. Listen, if we embrace God's open opportunity for repentance. The problem is, is sometimes people never embrace God's opportunity. And they persist in their rebellion, and they persist in their sin, and they only bring what's judge, uh, just ultimately upon themselves. It tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, this morning, perhaps you have failed. Maybe you've made an absolute mess of your life. You have more reason to be guilty and regret things you've done than anybody else in this room. Listen, God's still patient. He's still reaching out to you. He's just as ready to forgive you if you're willing to respond to what he's offering to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been struggling for a time. Maybe you've backslidden as a Christian or maybe you've really just made some mistakes recently. Don't have the perception that God's an angry police officer. He's not ready to judge. Instead, know from Scripture he's a patient, loving father. God wants to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to help reconcile what's wrong in your life. He wants to offer you mercy and grace. And give you again an opportunity to rediscover your purpose. To protect you from destroying yourself and wasting your potential. And becoming a fruitful, blossoming follower of Jesus the way God intends you to be. I love Jeremiah 29.11 and many people fail to recognize the context. Jeremiah 29.11 was a verse when the nation of Judah had failed God miserably. They had repeatedly turned away from God. They were in rebellion for years and they were then struggling and dealing with the consequences as the result of their rebellion against God. And in that rebellious fallen condition, God says to them, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Listen, this morning... Please know that is the right perspective of God. That even at our moments of greatest failure, when we are at our worst, God's thoughts, don't believe the lie, God's thoughts are not to harm you, to destroy you. God's thoughts towards you is he wants to see you experience his peace as you come into right relationship with him. And he says, man, I have such a future for you. I'm hoping such incredible things for you still. Would you please stop being stubborn? I have such a future for you. Such a hope for you. I don't care how many times you failed. I knew you were going to fail. I have hope for you. I have a future for you. And he just waits for us to turn and respond to what he's extending towards us. Shall we stand? Let's pray together.